Welcome back, folks, to episode 21 of the RF Factor with Bob Scales. Pete, welcome back, my friend. I know you've uh, taken a little, you took a little time off here, but you're back. It's been a while. I know, I know. I've been playing hooky, but uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad to be back. Glad to be back. And I, I hope Bob appreciates me coming back. And <laughs> well, um, are you purposely doing that with the sun in the background to show how San Diego no, is so beautiful and sunny? It's I, I've got a, I've got a window that's up high. It's a small little window and there's no blind or anything on it. And it's just the time of day, the time of year. And that sun is going to go away in a minute. So don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, not here. The time of year here is a little cold, but um, Hey, Bob, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, we're very fortunate that we have a lot of guests, uh, excuse me, listeners, um, that reach out to us and say, hey, you want to get this guy or this gal on the show. And you're one of those people that were recommended. Uh, when they recommended you, I went into your, your sort of your social media on LinkedIn, and uh, I started reading some of the stuff that you've uh, written and that you post about police reform, about understanding data, about how data is critical for police reform. Uh, and your 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 background on this material is uh, impeccable as well. So I thought it'd be great to have you on. So welcome yeah, aboard. Well, well, thanks for having me. I I I, I recently started. Um, I'm not a big social media guy, but I recently started just sort of posting my thoughts on things that came across my newsfeed and everything. And it it's it's been quite fun, and a, a lot of people seem to appreciate it because not too many people are sort of talking about the issues that I am. <laughs> So yeah, well, it's, that's, it's, that's, it's been great. It's a good thing. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, particularly on, on how, how you've gotten here as it relates to police reform and data analysis. Sure. So I, I was a, a prosecutor in King County, Washington in the 1990s, and uh, I worked on uh, a number of different interesting projects, including a, a, a gun violence uh, a crime reduction program and a juvenile uh, um, firearm crime program. And, um, I worked, um, I, I switched to the Seattle mayor's office in 2000 and, and, uh, worked as a public safety policy advisor for 14 years for several mayors. And, uh, then I switched to the city attorney's office in Seattle and I was there when the, uh, Department of Justice came in in 2011 and did their pattern practice investigation um, that led to the consent decree that the department's still under. And uh, the mayor appointed me to be the compliance coordinator to oversee the reforms in the department at the beginning of the consent decree. Can I, and, hey Bob, just can I just interrupt you one second? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with the pattern and practice, the, the phrase and the understanding, but maybe you can just explain just pattern and practice. And sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think that's worthy of. But uh, just to, just describing for a second. Sure, sure. So in I believe it was about 1994, Congress passed um, a, a statute um, that gave the attorney general uh, in the Civil Rights Division the authority to investigate uh, local and state law enforcement agencies for a what they call a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing. And so the Department of Justice can go after individual officers for civil rights violations. Um, but this new statute uh, gave them the authority to actually go after the department if they did an investigation and found that the department had uh, policies or training 
that essentially created a systemic environment of unconstitutional policing. So, um, and and if the depart if the Department of Justice found a pattern of practice, then they had the authority to um, uh, uh, essentially leverage to convince the local jurisdiction to enter into a what's called a consent decree, um, which really isn't a consent decree. It's it's more of a, 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 an imposed decree. Uh, but basically, the the under threat of litigation, the the local jurisdiction would agree to. Um, uh, go under this decree that would be overseen by a federal judge and a, and a federal monitor and the DOJ, and they would have a, a an agreement between DOJ and the and the agency on a long list of reforms that had to be implemented, and then what compliance would look like, and then it would be up to the judge and the monitor to determine whether or not the department had met compliance. and And so Seattle started theirs in. 2012, and they're still under the consent decree, which will go on probably for at least another five years because they have to have full and effective compliance for two years before they can get out of it. And it, which is typical because these these decrees, um, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about the decrees, but generally they're not, they don't lead to the kinds of reform that people are looking for. And they tend to be extremely expensive and incredibly bureaucratic, and they lead to more problems than they actually find solutions. So, um, but that is that is sort of the process. And, and they start out as an offer you can't refuse, right? Yeah, the only, there's only one, as far as I know, there's only one jurisdiction that's ever said no. And that was the Alamance County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office. And the Department of Justice did a pattern of practice investigation and they found, uh, I think it was, it, it could have been the racial bias or they, they found some could have been use of force, but they found a pattern of practice in some aspect of, of their policing practices. And they said, you have to, DOJ said, you have to enter into a consent decree. And the sheriff, it's a little easier for sheriffs because they're separately elected. So the sheriff said no. Um, and so because he said no, the Department of Justice had no choice if they wanted to pursue this except to take them to federal court. And they did. And the federal government failed to prove that there was, in fact, a pattern of practice. Wow. And so um, the, the DOJ appealed. But then during the appeal process, they basically worked out a deal with the sheriff that said, if you just agree to do some of these things, then we'll drop our appeal. And of course, the sheriff agreed, and and that was it. But the 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 interesting thing is that there there have been you know probably about seventy or eighty consent decrees over the last twenty five years, um, and uh, in that in, during that time period, the DOJ has never once proven an actual pattern of practice. What they do is they'll do a secret study. And then they'll produce findings that will claim that there's a pattern of practice, but they've never actually proven it in court. So give us the good, the bad and the ugly on, uh, on consent decrees. Well, uh, my experience is, is that there it's a very closed process, you know, for all the all the talk about openness and transparency. Uh, uh, DOJ is the least transparent organization that I've ever worked with. Um, they won't tell you anything. And, and they'll do everything behind closed doors and in secret. And then it won't be until they've actually reached their conclusions that they will tell you in their findings letter. Um, and then they'll say, you have no choice but to do a consent decree. We're not willing to negotiate. We're not willing to explain our findings. And when the DOJ uh, for Seattle 
uh, they they conducted a, a, a nine month investigation where they collected um, thousands of documents from SPD, Seattle PD, and 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 we were we were just an open book, right? We would give them anything they asked for, um, answered any question, made any personnel available to them to interview. Um, and so they conducted this investigation and they had what, what they called experts looking at the data. And then late one night in, in December, they summoned the mayor and the police chief and the command staff to the U.S. attorney's office. And they said that next, the next morning they were going to issue, uh, have a press conference and issue their findings. And their findings were that 20% of all of the use of force incidents in Seattle PD were excessive or unnecessary and unconstitutional. And we said, that's that's not possible. Uh, we would know if 20 percent of our uses of force were were uh, unconstitutional because we do a thorough review of each use of force incident. And so he said, can you tell us which cases you've identified as being unconstitutional? And they refused. They said, no, we won't tell you anything. You just have to do the consent decree. So this led to about a six month period of intense negotiations between DOJ and the mayor's office and the police department. And ultimately it was a, came down to a political decision where you had the, 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 the Seattle city council, the Seattle city attorney, who's a separately elected, um, a lot of community groups and, 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 um, and, uh, coming down on the side of wanting a consent decree and the mayor and the police chief basically saying, well, we don't think we should, but, um, ultimately the mayor agreed to do the consent decree. And uh, it's cost over a hundred million dollars over the last ten years. Um, it has resulted in um, a, a several turnovers of command staffs. So you've lost all of the institutional knowledge in the department, um, and um, and and it's it created a disaster during the George Floyd protests, where you had the police department abandoning an entire precinct. Um, and an entire neighborhood um, wouldn't get police services and was occupied by the protesters. And and there were so many people who were involved in managing the department and telling the department what they should or shouldn't do during those protests that they ended up without any leadership. And and just I, I don't know of any police department in the country that's ever abandoned an entire precinct and neighborhood um, uh, for for. A month or more, um, and and so so it's 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 I mean a lot of problems, but but typically what I see in in DOJ consent decrees is that they're I mean we I know we probably don't want to talk about politics, but they're ninety percent political and ten percent based on some kind of evidentiary finding, um, and that that includes who the DOJ decides to investigate because they have very limited resources, and you have eighteen thousand law enforcement agencies, and they've never revealed. Who? What are their criteria for investigating an agency? And right now they're investigating Minneapolis, Phoenix, and Louisville. And obviously these are all agencies that have had some high-profile incidents. But there are there are a lot of agencies <laughs> and a lot of smaller agencies that may have serious problems that the DOJ will never look at because there's not no political advantage or or interest in going after these smaller agencies. So could a consent decree provide any value and and if yes what would have to change what 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 do you think are the key 
the key factors that would go into making a worthwhile and sustainable consent decree? Or would you say never do it? No, I, I think consent decrees do have a role and, and, and they could provide value if a department had problems and they refused to change. So in Seattle, when the Department of Justice said, you have a pattern of practice of unconstitutional uses of force, our response was, we will do whatever you want us to do. If you want us to implement new policies, we'll do that. You want us to do new training, we will do that. We, we, we're, you know, we were willing to make whatever changes they said were necessary. And what they said is, no, we have to force you to do it. Unless we force you to do it, it won't work. And, and so, again, it's this political, they wanted, to have, they wanted to get credit for forcing the department to make these reforms. And, but if you did have a department that had problems, identified problems, and the chief or the command staff or the mayor, they said, look, go away. We don't think we have any problems. We're not gonna make any changes. And then then it makes sense for the DOJ to go after and say, all right, we're going to we, we, you know, since you're unwilling to make any reforms on your own, we're going to have to force you into this consent decree. Um, but even then, DOJ needs to reform their own practices in order to effectively implement reforms. None of none of the DOJ reforms are evidence based. Um, they have no data. They have no information on on what is a good use of force policy, what is effective use of force training. They don't know. They make it up as they go along. And and so until we have that, those evidence based practices in place. And for example, we asked the DOJ, we said, what's a, a model policy for use of force that you would recommend? And they said, well, there isn't one. We have to we have to tailor make this for your agency and we have to go through this this multi-year process to develop the the best use of force for your agency, which is crazy because, I mean, use of force is use of force. And there may be some tweaks depending on state law and your own. But but I mean, everybody's governed by the Graham v. Connor standards and and and, you know, everybody can see something like like a George Floyd case, you don't have to have a special policy or anything to know that that was an unlawful use of force practice and, and criminal. Um, and so, so there are certain things that should be universal um, in terms of your policies and your training, um, but there are no best practices right now for use of force because there's no evidence. And, and so let's talk about the evidence. What, what do you think needs to be collected by whom and how and yeah. Program that started in 2019, and the FBI is is collected data now from more than 7,000 law enforcement agencies around the country, um, but they're only collecting data on deadly force. Uh, so the discharge of a firearm or, or uh, any other force that results in a death or serious bodily injury. Um, so that's probably, you know, two or 3% of all the actual uses of force, physical force and weapons that are used. So it's a pretty small percentage, but right now there's no data. And, and so the FBI started collecting this in 2019. They have 
presumably they have a lot of information from these 7,000 agencies, and yet the FBI refuses to release any data. Um, and they, they say that we have to, they have to have 60% of agencies participating before they'll release any data. And then when they, when they do, they're not going to release any data on individual agencies. They're only going to release aggregate data at the state level and the national level. So all these groups and individuals and people that want transparency, they want to know what's happening with their local police department. And the FBI isn't going to tell anybody anything about that. It's only state and national level. So there's, even if the FBI was releasing data, people would be very disappointed with the results um, because you only you, you don't know what's happening with your local department. And, and because of this lack of data, the media and other activist groups have stepped into the void and they have started collecting data on their own. So the, the most comprehensive data that we have now on deadly force in the United States comes from the Washington Post uh, because they started collecting data through crowdsourcing media reports, public records requests. And so a media outlet has more data than the federal government or any local government about deadly force in, 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 and it's only deaths. I mean, they're not even counting deadly force. It's only force that results in a death. And then you have other organizations like fatalencounters.org and mapping police violence um, that have uh, our private advocacy groups that, that have expanded that data collection somewhat. Um, but, it, it, it's it's crazy to think that you 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 have the FBI that is responsible for collecting, you know, UCR data, NIBRS data, um, a database on law enforcement officers who are killed or assaulted, and all of that data they make available online, but not deadly force data that they are collecting uh, and that they have, and they refuse to release it. So, Bob, well, is is the uh, is the challenge that uh, uh, they just don't know how to analyze or interpret it. Well, it, the one of the interesting things is, is that there there this should be public record, right? Any any data like this, this is not this is not CGIS information they're collecting the criminal justice information system. So this is the CGIS information. If you have criminal history records and personally identifiable information, that information is not publicly available. The FBI database on deadly force does not include any any CGIS information. So there's nothing there's no exemptions to a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, it all should be made public. But the FBI has internal rules that they impose on themselves, which says we're not going to release any data until we get to 60 percent compliance. And even then, we're only going to release it at a state or national level. So these are restrictions that they're imposing on themselves. Um, and I actually submitted a, a FOIA request uh, 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 last month. And I said, just give me all the data. You have data from 7,000 agencies that you've collected. I want to get the, the raw data. And I got a response back from the FBI where they sent me a five page PDF that had the, the list of data elements that they collect, but no data. So. Uh, and they said, this is responsive to your request and we're closing your request. So uh, I posted that on LinkedIn and you had, I had all these people that used to work and work for the FBI saying, this is not right. You know, they can't just blow you off like this. Um, but I, I, you know, my, my thing isn't for your request. And I don't, I'm not going to, you know, start a lawsuit or anything against the FBI, but, but they should, they should be turning over this data that they have. 
and and it's really a, a detriment to to society to have all this data that they've collected and refuse to release it. Because if we had that data, even if it wasn't for all the agencies, we could start comparing the FBI data with the data from the Washington Post and these other agencies and see how accurate their databases are. Um, so I think it's not so much a function of they don't know. What, I think the FBI does know what to do with the data. They just are refusing to do anything with it, which doesn't so, make sense to me, because why do it in the first place? So, so Bob, you know, we, we've got um, we, we've got a number of, of listeners, uh, many of them personal acquaintances that friends um, that are police executives today. They may even be police chiefs or assistant chiefs. And um, one of them calls us up and says, hey, uh, we had the, you had this guy on, this guy, Bob Scales. He was talking about data, use of force data. Um, could you give us Bob's phone number? And I want to give him a call. I want to ask Bob, hey, I'm interested as a police chief in doing the right thing here. And you keep talking about data. Well, what should I be collecting? What kind of data should I, should I install a process for that I can start collecting start amassing to get to a point where we can determine and, and analyze whether we have an issue or not. What, what, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because we, we started our company in 2015 and um, nobody knew who we were or anything. And so I, I, I went to a lot of different conferences around the country, including ICP and did presentations and had a booth and 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 invariably the the response i would get from from police executives was um i i already know what's happening in in my department um i don't need a data system to to tell me that and 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 so i don't i'm not going to spend the time or the money to to create these you know data analysis and so forth and i i can we can just do it internally ourselves and a lot of departments are looking at their own data um the, the challenge is, uh, is that if you don't collect and analyze and provide data to the public, someone else will. Uh, and that's what's happening with these with these different the Washington Post and these other crowdsourcing sites is they'll do public records requests and they'll they'll get all these all these records from the uh, department and and then they will analyze the data. And this happens all the time. And you're always seeing media reports of so-and-so did this study of this department and that study of that department. And they'll always come up with their own spin on what the data means, particularly for racial disparity analysis. And then the department's left saying, well, that's that's not right. You know, we don't we don't think that's right. Um, but they don't they haven't done their their own internal evaluation and collection of the data to be able to to present an accurate picture of what's going on. So when we start working with an agency, we have different different data systems that we've developed and the most the biggest one we have is our force analysis system. And so when we start working with an agency, um, there's no agency that currently collects all the data that we we use for our system. We use over 150 different data fields on each use of force incident to really understand exactly what happened. What happened when the officer arrived, what happened during the force incident, what happened after the force incident, and look at things at the incident level, the subject level, and the officer level. No agency right now is collecting and analyzing all of that data. But all of that information exists in the incident reports and the officer narrative statements. 
So when an officer arrives on the scene, if they end up using force in an incident, they're going to document everything about that incident because they know they have to be able to, there's going to be an investigation. There may be a lawsuit. There may be a complaint. They're going to, they know exactly what they have to put in their report and how much detail. So, so all we have this wealth of information, but it's in an officer's narrative statement. So what we do is we review those statements and we have a, a, a coding process that we've developed. And so we review each use of force incident. We pull out all these data variables and then we have different legal algorithms that we run them through. And so then we give dashboards back to the department. So instead of reviewing thousands of use of force incident reports, they have a dashboard that they can do their own queries and they can look at different types of force and force factors and force justifications and, and different risk areas. And they can start to evaluate their policies and training and individual officer practices. Um, and, and, and you don't have to, you know, necessarily get an IT system to do that. And, and a lot of agencies do their own, you know, they'll have crime analysts or, or others within the department um, that will look at the data. The, the, the challenge is that you really have to be it has to be comprehensive. I mean, you really have, it's not enough just to collect, you know, how many times do we use a taser last year? Um, a lot of departments just collect basic, how many times did things happen? But you have to go deeper in order to understand the use of force, you really have to go deeper into the analysis and look at, at how and why officers are using force. You also have to look at subject behavior because whether an officer uses force or not will depend on what the subject does. Is the subject compliant? Are they threatening the officer? Are they assaulting the officer? Are they fleeing from the officer? So you, many departments collect data on what the officer does, but you have to collect data on what the subject does as well to understand what, what's, what's happening. Excellent, excellent point. Excellent point that often gets overlooked, especially in today's day and age. Um, what's the name of your company? Uh, police strategies. And before we before we end, I'm sure Ray will ask you um, how people could get a hold of you. But go ahead, Ray. You have one. I, I I do. So after you guys crunch this data, what do you give back to the police executive, the agency? Do you give them uh, an assessment of what happened? Do you give them strategy? Do you give them uh, avenues for training for corrective measures? Yeah. So, so right now there, there are a lot of consultants that will come into a department and they'll review their policies. They'll review their training. They'll look at their procedures and they'll interview a lot of folks and they'll typically come up with, you know, hundred recommendations for how the department can improve. And all of those recommendations are going to be based on the consultant's opinion. Um, they're not going to be based on data. Um, we're very different. Um, so we come in and we look at the data and, and our, our goal is to, is to provide the data, the information back to the agency so they can make those decisions so that they can query the data. They can ask the questions about the data and they can make their own decisions about policies and training, um, and not based on our, our opinion of it. Um, and so, so our focus is, um, so they'll give us the, the data and the reports and so forth. And what we provide is we, we give them a, a written report that, that summarizes um, 
what what the data and trends and patterns show. And then we give them uh, two series of dashboards, well, actually three series of dashboards. So the first dashboard series is sort of internal dashboards where uh, a department can drill down into individual officers and individual incidents and, and do all those comparative data. The second dashboard system is uh, comparative interagency comparative dashboards. So because we're collecting data from departments and analyzing it in collecting it and standardizing the coding. So every every agency is looked at in exactly the same way. So it doesn't matter the size or the location of the agency, type of agency, we're looking at use of force exactly the same way. So because we're standardizing the coding, we can start to make interagency, meaningful interagency comparisons. So you can compare, right now we have just about 100 agencies in the system in, in from eight states. And even though it's a relatively small sample, um, you can get a sense of, of you know, how does your agency's um, uh, uh, force practices compare with other agencies? How do uh, officer injury rates and subject injury rates compare to other agencies? And and we've already found, we, we've done a few uh, peer-reviewed journal articles with different academic institutions. And the first one we did was in Police Quarterly, and we looked at regional differences in use of force practices. Um, and most of the agencies we have now are in Washington State, California, and Wisconsin. And so what we found was that in, in Washington state, there's a heavy reliance on tasers. In California, there's a heavy reliance on strikes and batons. In Wisconsin, uh, it's almost all low-level physical force. They almost never use any intermediate weapons and, and all wow. the force they use is pretty, pretty low. Um, and we think that's a function of, of state training. training. Uh yeah. yeah. And, and it's just yep. and it's also also a function of, of equipment that may be available. Some agencies in California don't have tasers, so obviously they wouldn't have a high taser rate. But it looks like the, the, the state training academy is is probably a major driver of use of force practices in different states. Um, and uh, and then the, the third series of dashboards we present are public dashboards. So this is more aggregated data. But if an agency wants to provide some of their data available to the public where the public can actually query the data themselves, uh, then we then we do that as well. And that's those have proved to be very popular. We get a lot of hits and views on those on those dashboards and a lot of community engagement and feedback. Um, and it really does help to provide even though it might not change people's minds, depend if they already have a strong opinion of the police, probably seeing the data isn't going to change their minds, but at least we'll have accurate and comprehensive data. So when issues come up, we can have a data informed discussion, even if there's not agreement amongst the parties. So 10 or 20 seconds on somebody's cell phone uh, video uh, of an incident or a piece of an incident, one single incident that makes the uh, six o'clock news can uh, be all the pattern and practice some people think they need to say that this department is doing something wrong. So I would think that it would behoove any police chief to get ahead of this and to start collecting data, whether they use your company or a company like it or whatever, or, or understand what data they need to collect, because why wait until one incident begins to define your department when you could start collecting data today and hopefully have accumulated uh, a couple of years worth of data so that you have a response and you can show people and be transparent to what you're doing or not doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, the the public opinion 
uh, on on police use of force is being shaped by less than one percent of all the force that occurs. Exactly. Uh, and, and obviously, it's the most extreme, you know, examples that people are seeing. So when when you when you talk about police use of force, people immediately goes to their mind is deadly force. And then what also comes to mind are those acts of of unjustified force like George Floyd. And and what what people many people do not understand is that use of force is is a necessary component of policing. You, you could not do your job as a police officer if you could not use force, because you, you, there are always going to be some suspects that will not comply. And 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 so if, if you're if you're dealing with a situation and the subject is fleeing or resisting or threatening, you know, the officer or someone else, then you have to have the ability to use some level of force to either stop the threat or control or, or bring the subject into, into custody. And what we've found is that about 4% of arrests result in some type of force. And, and so that means that 96% of the time, when officers are arresting a subject, they're able to do it without any force. They're able to gain compliance without the use of any force at all, which is a pretty high percentage when you think about what you're dealing with. Um, and people are being you know, forcibly or you know taken in involuntary custody uh, for some type of offense. And and so what this means too is that if your officers are making more arrests, your uses of force are going to go up. I guarantee you. And when use of force goes down, that's generally when officers are pulling back. And so typically what we see when a consent decree happens or when there's a lot of scrutiny placed on on a police department after some high profile incident, officers may pull back and they may be less proactive and they may not be making as many arrests, particularly for low level offenses. And so what happens when a consent decree starts is that use of force goes down. And and the DOJ will say, isn't this great? You know, we, our, our consent decree is already working. We haven't even started and it's already working. But what's happening is, is that officers are dis disengaging, being less proactive, making fewer arrests. And that means uses of force are going down. And criminal impunity is going up um, in many cases. Exactly. So so if if. If if suspects realize that, hey, if I commit a crime and officers are reluctant and I flee and officers are reluctant to chase me or or either on foot or a vehicle pursuit, then I'm going to I'm going to run away every time. Why would I ever stop? You know, when an officer tells me to stop. Exactly. And in and, and, and some places, I think that's where we're headed. Criminal hey, hey, Bob, Bob, we've uh, we've spoke a lot tonight about uh, data and analysis. Have you found. Uh, in your experiences that oftentimes many police executives, since they didn't really come from that world of data analysis, that uh, it takes a little bit of a, an education or informing them on, on the value of data and analysis? It, it's a lot easier now than it was, you know, seven years ago. Um, uh, because I think that with with there's there's so much scrutiny and so much intensity around policing issues. Uh, and, and there's also so much misinformation out there about policing that that I think I think police executives are, are, are realizing now that that there's no benefit to a department in keeping the data to themselves. And there's there's immense benefit in sharing as much information as they can with the public and the media um, 
and, and, and so, so yeah, it's, it's like night and day for, 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 for our business. I mean, I mean, we're, we're extremely busy now because people have, have law enforcement's really realized that this is a really good, I mean, I mean, we need to get this information out there because people don't understand what we're doing. So uh, one other question I have is obviously the, the title of our podcast is relentless follow-up. Um, how do you inspire your police executives to relentlessly follow up on the data, uh, both uh, the current data that you're providing them and then into the future, whether you're still there or not, and, or you know, if your contract has ended? Right. Well, well, I think that the main goal of what we do is to, you know, not not sort of impose our judgment on a department or give them a bunch of recommendations for what we think would be good, but to give the department itself the tools uh, and the data and the information that they can they can use it to really make good decisions and make good policies and do good training. And not only that, but be able to measure the impacts. So, so if you implement a new policy and you have five years of historical use of force data and, you know, I implemented this policy on January 1st, you know, 2022, then you can start looking at, well, what happened after I implemented that policy compared to before? And, and am I seeing the results that I want to see or is it having some unintended impacts? And so you can use the system to evaluate the effectiveness of all these, any reform that you put into place. So if you do de-escalation training for all your officers, I would want to know as an executive, is that working? I mean, I'm spending, I mean, I'm putting my officers through 40 hours of crisis intervention training and, and uh, spending all this money, millions of dollars, you know, uh, is it having an impact? And, and is it having the impact that I want it to have? And if you can start to show actual results for some of these reforms that you're putting into place, then that's going to be great for an executive, for his elected officials. When budget time comes around, it's going to be great for the public to show that, hey, we're implementing these reforms and look at look at what changes have happened. So but without the data, you know, you just check the box. I did the training. I did. I did this. I did that. Um, so so it really I, th- I think executives are are starting to to you know really understand I, I we don't have any any department that pays us for our services that doesn't use the dashboards that we give them it would be right. that would be and so in many ways our our clients are sort of self-selecting i mean we tend to get the more progressive chiefs and sheriffs that that really want this information um because none of it's being forced on them uh they have to choose us and pay for it you know um it's obvious. It's obvious. I, I know it's obvious to me, and I know it's obvious to Ray that there's a uh, that there's a def- definite return on investment. This is an investment, and there's definitely we could see a number of areas where there would be a significant return on that investment. Having said that, is is this something that's uh, initially affordable uh, for a police department to engage your company? Yeah. So, so we, uh, that, that's another big problem with a lot of these sort of, you know, IT systems that may be on the market, like early warning systems, they can be pretty expensive. I'm, I'm not a proponent of any early warning system. Um, Cause I don't think there's any 
IT system that can predict the future, predict future misconduct. But but uh, that is that is a stumbling block for a lot of these IT systems. But because we're not really an IT system, we're we're we're, we're more of a, a data analytics service. Um, our 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 uh, sort of pricing model is based on the number of use of force incidents your your department has. So if you're a small department and you have you know 10 uses of force a year the system is very inexpensive because our, our mm-hmm. costs are driven by the number of cases that we actually have to review and enter the data so so at least and then obviously the larger the department we just we just started a project with with uh dallas pd and they're the largest agency we're working with now and and you know they have thousands of cases a year so obviously their system is going to be more expensive than than a, a, a more smaller department but we've never had a situation where uh, if an agency wants our system where they where they couldn't afford it. And this is something that I, I would think you and your company are scalable to be able to take on a and everything from small independent clients to large, large departments like Dallas. Well, yes and no. Uh, so so one of the big challenges that we have is is just that scalability. So Dallas is a real challenge because we have to manually review and code thousands of use of force reports a year Um, for smaller agencies obviously that's not a problem but for the larger agencies it's more challenging so one of the things that we're working on now with seattle university is a proposal uh, to build a statewide data collection program for washington state Um, the legislature passed uh, uh, senate bill 5259 last year that calls for the creation of a statewide data collection project and it's going to be housed at a university in Washington State. So there's going to be an RFP that will be issued soon. And as part of that project, um, we'll have the historical data collection coming from uh, our, our manual coding process because it's the only way to get the historical data. Um, but moving forward, um, the only way, like in Washington State, we estimate there's going to be about 15,000 incidents a year. So that's a lot of incidents to manually code. So we're going to have an option available where agencies and officers can enter the enter the data directly into the system because the 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 data collection i mean and even though it sounds like a lot 150 different data fields it, it's 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 not like you're entering 150 different data fields on every incident that's the, that's the maximum number possible so if all you do is use your taser and nothing else then you don't have to worry about all the other physical and and other weapons um, and so with a with an officer data entry system we think you can um, enter the data, you know, in, in two or three minutes. And because use of force is relatively rare, you know, officers might only have to enter data two or three times a year. So it's not a huge time issue for officers. And, and because we'd be getting the data directly from the officers right after the incident, that would enable us to update the dashboards in real time. Um, so whereas now we have to, you know, it, we, we generally update them annually and we have to do a manual coding process, which can take several weeks. So in the long term, our goal is to move to this officer data entry system and then we can, uh, uh, per, then, then we're totally scalable. And then, then we can also reduce the cost that would sure. dramatically reduce the cost of the system because we're not doing any of the manual coding. If you're focusing on the information component, they're focusing on the physical component, actually entering the data. Um, are there federal grants available to police departments for this type of data collection? 
You know, the, uh, uh, we have had some departments that have have purchased our system, initial system through grants. I don't think there are any sort of, um, you know, special sort of grants that are earmarked specifically for this kind of 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 system. They're more general, you know, burn grants or something like that. Are you listening, um, NIJ? Are you listening? <laughs> Yeah, if I, if I was if I was selling body cameras, I'd be I'd have it made. You know, there's plenty of grants for that. Um, but uh, but but yeah, I mean, it 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 should be. I, I think it it should be a, a a bigger priority for for federal and and state funding, and that's why the Washington State Project is so great because the legislature you know fully funded that project, um, and so so it, it it's it's there'll be no cost to the law enforcement agencies themselves in participating. And we have strong support from both the, the Washington association of sheriffs and police chiefs and the, the fraternal order of police on this on, I mean, they have seen the value of data collection. So they, they were both all law enforcement agencies were totally in support of the, of the legislation and they all want this data and information. So we're going to have great, uh, cooperation participation from all the 274 agencies in Washington state. Well, we're going to, we're going to definitely get you back on to follow up on that. I mean, after all relentless follow-ups in our name here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Hey, Bob, I have a one final question and I'm going to, it's going to spin off of uh, something that Pete taught me a long time ago when I first met him, when I was on the job trying to <laughs> implement uh, a new new program, new initiatives. And it was that regardless of the program or initiative, it fundamentally comes down to people, processes, and technology. So in your experience, as it relates to police reform, particularly as we talked about data and analysis, what's the the toughest challenge? Is it the people? Is it the, the processes in terms of policies and procedures? Or is it the right technologies? That's an interesting question. Certainly the technology is not a problem, right? We can do, we can do pretty much anything with data analysis right now with, I mean, I mean, dash, whereas dashboards or statistical packages, I mean, that that's easy. Um, I think there's, there's, there's less and less obstacles in terms of, of, of funding and, and interest from both elected officials as well as police executives I mean, everybody wants the data now. The, the biggest challenge, I think, is, is explaining the data because, because people have this preconceived notion of what's going on. And when the data doesn't support that, they tend to reject the data. Um, and, and this is particularly true with, with racial disparity studies um, and that, that typically look at, at uh, some police activity, you know, stops, arrests, uses of force compared to the population. And when you do that, you'll always see large disparities for for usually for Native Americans and African Americans. And then you see underrepresentation for Asian Americans. Uh, and and um, so the, the typical narrative is that these disparities for for either black, Hispanic or Native Americans are due to officer bias. And and I'm I'm absolutely sure that officer bias does play a role at some at some level, but not to the level that most people think and that those disparities are driven primarily by reported crimes. And when you look at NIBRS data on reported crimes, 
you see similar percentages to stops and arrests and uses of force, which is what you would expect, because if 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 90 percent of your calls that are coming in are about, you know, robberies in a particular neighborhood, uh, then that's where your police resources are going to be focused. And that's where your officers are going to be looking for that kind of activity. And and so 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 much of policing is driven by calls for service and by what the community is asking the police to do. And within that, that's where you see the significant disparities with the population. Yeah. Bob, uh, I can't thank you enough for this uh, conversation. Um, Pete, you have anything else? Uh, other, other than to say that, um, you know, quote uh, Sergeant Joe Friday from Dragnet years ago. I don't know how old you are. I remember. I remember that. <laughs> okay, I am well, that anyway, old. <laughs> you know what? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. And the facts today are in the data. And um, I, I think that uh, you've made the case. Uh, I'm a believer. I think uh, I think it behooves any police chief today in, 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 in the environment that we're working in today to get ahead of this game and start collecting the data and be transparent with it and let the data lead and follow wherever it goes. Very true. Hey, Bob, so where could folks find you at? I know you said that at one time you were not into social media, but now you, you are. Um, so well, where can only they find LinkedIn. you on social media? I don't, I don't do I don't do TikTok or Instagram or anything like that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a LinkedIn guy, professional yeah. social media. So uh, where can they find you on LinkedIn as well as your, you have a company website too? Sure. I mean, my name, Bob Scales, you can find me on LinkedIn or Police Strategies. And then our, our website is uh, policestrategies.com. Wow. Thank you. Do you have any, do you have anything for us or do we cover it all? No, you, you. It was great. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I never get tired. As you know, if you if you looked at my LinkedIn and all my posts, I never get tired about talking about this. Yeah, you're <laughs> and, definitely and, passionate. Yep. Yeah, and, and 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 what's really exciting is is that things are starting to change, and 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 I think things have gone on so long, you know, in the absence of data, and people are so getting so frustrated with everything that it's it's time. I mean, it's like if we want to create any meaningful change, if we really want to understand what's going on, we have to have the data. And I think people are starting to realize that. So it's an exciting time. You know, well, the police are the community, the community of the police, and they have to trust each other. Yep. And that trust has been eroded over the last number of years. And something has to be done to restore it. And it's just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, gentlemen, thank you again for coming on the RF Factor episode, episode 21 with Bob Scales. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Same here. Have a good night, folks. Good night.